0: Welcome to our, welcome to CETA DC webinars. And this week we will be discussing the world reactions on George Floyd uh, incidents and demonstrations. And we have seen that there are demonstrations not only in the United States now, it has been more than two weeks and the demonstrations are spreading to Europe, Australia, Latin America, and even in the Middle East uh, nowadays. And we have two uh, panelists today Dr. Fung from Johns Hopkins University, and uh, Mr. Baragi from uh, Atlantic, Council, uh, Atlantic Council, a senior non-resident uh, fellow at Atlantic Council. And I will start asking them several questions about their perspective about the reaction to the events in the world. And following that, I will get your questions. You can write your questions to uh, on Zoom. If you are on Zoom, you can write to the question box or the chat box. Uh, If you are following it from on YouTube, uh, Instagram, or any other social media and Twitter, you can write it as a comment. My assistants will pick those questions up for me and I will ask uh, our panelists. The first question, uh, we will start with, Dr. let's start with a general questions. Why are these? Uh, why are there demonstrations around the world? We have seen similar events uh, in United States before, in 2014 in Missouri, in 2015 in Baltimore, even the several years ago Eric Garner event in New York. There were demonstrations in United States. There were large demonstrations, but it wasn't a demonstration. It didn't cause a demonstration around the world. So yeah. why around this time that? other people around the world are also interested in what, ha- what is happening in terms of race relations in the United States.
1: It's yes, definitely that this kind of uh, protest usually, uh, or the issue itself usually are sparks and that uh, trigger long uh, accumulated uh, grievances uh, about all kinds of things. And for example, a few years ago when, when Missouri, when Freddie Gray in Baltimore, there's the Black Lives Matter movement, Started, it didn't trigger a lot of uh, worldwide protests at that time, uh, but this time it, it did. Uh, I think uh, in different continents they have different reasons. Particularly, for example, in Europe, in UK, uh, first thing it is the, the pandemic uh, that uh, people have been frustrated about all kinds of things uh, for a long time, and at the same time. There's a growing sentiment of uh, uh, anti-Americanism under President Trump. That uh, many people in Europe, in particular, in other parts of the world, also uh, are frustrated about uh, the direction the world is heading. So all these kind of grievances, though not directly related to George Floyd uh, killing and to to, to the racial relation in the U.S., but all these add up together to trigger the people. And you can see that, and 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 in different places, people are protesting. Uh, not only in the public square, but also in front of the, the American embassies and, uh, and of course then and, and some of the protesters in Europe are also complain about uh, the racism in their own countries in France, in Germany, uh, uh, racism in different form and particularly in UK that there's a lot of uh, protests against the legacies of colonialism against, uh, against uh, UK involvement in the slave trade in the old time. So all these kinds of things add together, particularly under the condition of the pandemics that people are in lockdown and the economy is tanking. Um, so there's a lot of uh, underlying grievances and anger that is triggered uh, by this particular spark of uh, the protests of Black life matters in, in the US.
0: How about you, uh, Mr. Daragi? what do you think? Why? You
2: I, I tend to agree that you know it, it, it does have to do to some extent with um, animosity towards the current administration uh, in Washington, uh, the Trump administration, and its um, uh, right-wing uh, uh, pseudo-populism, its uh, uh, belligerence towards the rest of the world. I think that there, in, in the U.S., uh, very much this was a uh, protest not just against. Uh, police brutality but against uh, Trumpismo uh, such as it is and the um, uh, uh, white supremacist ideas that are behind uh, Trumpismo uh, so to speak. Um, I also think that there is a kind of um, yeah there's the 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 coronavirus uh, aspect which fostered uh, senses of both fear and solidarity among people all over the world. Um, and I, I also think there's just a particular moment that, that this, this the image of this man kind of captured this image of this man under a policeman's knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Uh, it was just so dramatic and so extreme, so much more extreme than things that we've seen. And it was sort of this very, horrifying and poetic image um, that is a potential kind of harbinger of the human condition under the uh, authoritarian uh, surveillance states that are growing up all over the planet. The, the, the high-tech uh, uh, repressive apparatuses that are uh, uh, kind of sprouting up all over the world under the guise of you know populism so to speak. And I think that this is very much a reaction to that. There's very much uh, uh, a reaction to the uh, frustration and fear of that vision of humanity of being crushed by uh, uh, the knee of a cop.
0: So uh, just a follow up for this, again, for both of you, uh, since you, uh, you both mentioned there is a global reaction to certain things that is happening in regards to white supremacy and right wing activism around the world, do you think will there be any reflection of this, these demonstrations to the elections this year in the United States and next year, uh, several countries, including Germany, have their elections in Europe?
1: Yeah, uh, in, in the US, that definitely that uh, the protests and the unrest and the turmoil will have effect on, on, on the election. That uh, the common wisdom is that this image of uh, chaos and turmoil and unrest uh, is a reflection of the uh, incompetence of uh, the administration. Of course, to be fair, this uh, Black Lives Matter and this right supremacy, this police brutality problem didn't uh, start with Trump, that it started many years ago, actually never went away uh, uh, even after the civil rights movement. But uh, uh, the Black Lives Matter itself actually started under Obama administration. Uh, but this time around, people still frame Trump because uh, it seems that people are complaining the administration is not doing a particularly effective job in calming down the situation, but on the other hand, saying things and treating things that might uh, further uh, provoke the uh, people. Uh, so people will still, will still, still, still blame Trump on this. And but at the same time, uh, some conservative people and analysts would uh, think that this uh, 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 the image of uh, looting, chaos, and 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 with some uh, minorities of of people who take. Advantage of the protest to loot shops and things like that, and, and then magnified it in the media. That it will create a kind of a panic about law and order. That uh, might, in some more conservative or swing states, might uh, provoke some of the conservative voter to 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 vote for Trump. So it is still still difficult to see how the to foresee how the impact of the protest will be benefiting Trump or hurting Trump. In the end, the election will be. Uh, determined by the economic and employment situation uh, 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 and the economy uh, in a large part. And uh, at this point, of course, it is not looking very uh, well for Trump, but it can change over the
2: next few
0: months.
2: Well, I mean, let's just uh, look at history. Um, in 1992, uh, we had a... Um, uh, a one-term Republican president. There was a uh, spring race riots over the Rodney King beating. Um, and, you know, he lost uh, that year, in part jo- George Bush, the first, uh, lost that year after one term as president to the Democrat, Bill Clinton, with widespread African-American support. Um, and then you look at uh, 1968, um, which was also a year of riots uh, and, uh, you know, chaos. And, the uh, the Democratic Party was in chaos, uh, and uh, you know that year uh, the 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 Democrats also lost uh, uh, to Richard Nixon uh, because of economic problems. There was also a, actually interestingly in '68 there was a pandemic as well the Hong Kong flu, the so-called Hong Kong flu, uh, and the incumbent party lost. So in general, in U.S. history, riots and economic troubles are. Spell bad news for the incumbent party uh, uh, in terms of the presidency. Um, I think there's another factor here, uh, this massive, massive political mobilization against Trump, uh, uh, unprecedented. And you saw that in 2018 midterm elections, this uh, gelling coalition uh, that had historic gains in those uh, uh, congressional and Senate elections uh, for the Democrats. And I have a feeling unless, Uh, Trump is able to pull something out of his hat um, and win some support among some key constituencies, uh, specifically uh, uh, suburban white women voters who are turned off to him at this point, Um, he's probably going to lose.
0: Uh, Yeah, uh, actually today's New York Times polls also showed that Biden is leading uh, with women actually in, in in a potential race between Biden and uh, Trump. Uh, so Dr. Hong, uh, I want to move a little bit about the reaction around the world and ask you a question about China and how China uh, reacted to this. You recently published an article on, uh, in foreign policy, and you mentioned China's critique about the Floyd incident, of course, doesn't stem from a genuine concern for universal mm-hmm. human rights and the well being of African Americans mm-hmm. so what was China reacting to
1: definitely trying to uh, take advantage of the protests and then the official medias and some spokespersons uh, of the foreign ministries also explicitly tweet or talk about the, the george floyd uh, uh, um, death killing and also the protests as a sign that the u s has a lot of human rights abuse problem and and uh, saying that uh, US has been hypocritic when it criticized China's uh, human rights record and things like that. But it is interesting to contrast China's uh, response to the George Floyd triggered protests in the US and other uh, reaction of other countries. That w- what stands out is that in, in other countries, in Latin America, in Middle East, in, in Europe, the, the response are from the society. Uh, people are protesting uh, spontaneously. Uh, against the U.S., against racism, against all kind of things, And the government uh, of these countries are careful not to comment uh, publicly on the situation. Uh, in China, is the opposite. that uh, You don't see any uh, spontaneous protests uh, among the people, uh, not even protests in front of U.S. embassy and things like that. It is totally controlled. And there's low civil society response. And the response is only in official medias and government-spoke persons and things like that. So it is uh, uh, difficult to gauge what is the standing among the common people, among the civil society, what they think about the George Floyd uh, incidents and the protests, the Black Lives Matter, but uh, definitely that the government's uh, response is not quite uh, Sincere in terms of its uh, alleged support of uh, African Americans' uh, livelihood and rights and also human rights in the us because uh, we all know that uh, in, in in China there is also a problem of racism uh, in China social media, which is controlled very heavily by the government, uh, you can see a lot of uh, posting against African american because now in certain southern cities in, in China there is a huge are the presence of African migrants now, but uh, they face a lot of institutional daily life uh, discrimination and in uh, the social media. So they are a lot censored while they, the government censor everything else. And in the pandemic that they are also the African uh, people in, in South China is also rounded up uh, and, and being excluded in rentals uh, arrangement and things like that. So so the, the racism is not uh, against African-American. It's not uh, uh, it's not non-existent in China and at the same time police brutality and human rights abuse and in, in, uh, against Uyghurs. So we talk about, we, we know about this uh, education camps uh, and, and all these abuses uh, around in China. So when China is talking about the U.S. police brutality and abuse of human rights, they are just trying to say, look, U.S. is as bad as us. So. Your US shouldn't uh, criticize China. We have our right to be like the US, to be abusive. And so it is very different from the civil society response around the world, which is really about the human rights abuse and, and the police brutality.
0: So, uh, one more question about this. When we look at the in 1990s, especially early 2000s, when there are issues about United States EP3 plane crash in Hainan Island. Or when uh, Prime Minister Abe visited Yasukuni Shrine uh, in Tokyo, there was huge demonstrations in the Chinese cities Mm -hmm. and the Chinese government allowed the protest in front of the U.S. embassy. Why do you think this time Chinese government didn't allow such a protest in front of the U.S. embassies or uh, in the cities of China?
1: Yeah, at that time, uh, both incidents. One is, I think it is the uh, uh, the Belgrade uh, bombing of the Chinese embassy uh, during the Kosovo war. Uh, uh, and the second time is the South China spy plane incidents in which uh, the Chinese uh, fighter plane pilot uh, died as a result. So they're both directly, um, some Chinese nationals are killed by US military, uh, accidentally or deliberately, then depending on, on the, your perspective. Uh, so at that time that the popular anger is very clear uh, that in the civil society that uh, you can see and you can understand that people are actually angry about the U.S. because they think that the U.S. military killed some Chinese nationals in bombing and in, 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 in the skirmish in the office of China Sea. So the Chinese government need to let some steam out. Uh, and so they have this controlled demonstration. Actually, demonstrators are uh, uh, bust in. To the, the neighborhood of the, the US embassy to protest in front of the embassy, and then they are bust away. Yeah. So the government knows that you need to let the steam out uh, because uh, some Chinese lives are involved, in it, uh, but they want to keep it under control. So they, they, they orchestrate this demonstration to make sure that it won't get out of control. And also, over Japan, it's the same. It's about uh, directly about Chinese territory or Chinese claim the territory. And this time around, uh, low Chinese life and Chinese territory directly is involved Then it is about some uh, uh, some other groups' uh, lives and rights, uh, so t's, uh, t's, uh, and, and the Chinese government definitely uh, don't think that you they need they to let some steam out and, and the popular anger against the U.S. I don't think is as big as uh, back in the, the, those incidents in the old times. Mm.
0: Mr. Baragi, uh, the same questions about the uh, the world's reaction and going to the Middle East, Iran reacted heavily for these demonstrations, especially uh, Ayatollah Khamenei made a statement actually about the killing of George Floyd and uh, the demonstrations after that. What do you think about uh, those reactions in Iran?
2: Well, I, I think that, you know, Iran, the, the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei has a long history of, um, look. Iranians watch closely what's happening in the United States. Um, people in the Middle East, in general, in Turkey, uh, they know far more about what's happening in the United States through Hollywood and through the the the, the, the news than Americans know about what's going on. You know, they, I mean, Iranians know who Nancy Pelosi is. How many uh, Americans could name the Speaker of the Iranian Parliament? You know, um, so you know th- there's there is a kind of close watch on what happens in the United States. Many Iranians, maybe pe- many people in the Middle East have relatives in, in the United States that they you know, connect to the story there. They know about this, everyone knows the story of um, uh, uh, African Americans uh, in the United States. People learn about slavery, the history of slavery in the United States, but they don't know anything about the history of slavery, for example, in Iran or the Ottoman Empire. Um, They don't, like, even study that in school. So, you know, there's a familiarity with this story, with this narrative, and it affects people. It affects people emotionally. So I don't think when when the Supreme Leader talks about this stuff, when he brings up human rights issues in the United States, um, it's it's not just for uh, political, uh, uh, you, you know, opportunism. That's there but they're also genuinely following this. They're genuinely following the story in the United States. In the same way, perhaps, you know, uh, uh, post-war Germany uh, uh, in the 50s and 60s and 70s was really fixated on, you know, what was happening in the United States and the uh, uh, jazz culture that would come over from from the United States and the uh, 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 ongoing kind of cultural exchanges that were happening there. So yes, there is this political opportunism on the part of the Syrian government, on the part of the Iranian government, on the part of even of the Egyptian government was sort of raising concerns about the treatment of African-Americans in the United States and so on after this incident. Um, But I also think that that because of Hollywood, because of the entertainment industry, the United States Kind of occupies a unique space in the imagination of people in the Middle East and Europe. Um, I don't know so much about about, uh, Far East Asia. I imagine a little bit there. And because of that, there is a genuine concern about what happened here and a genuine, um, almost visceral uh, uh, reaction of, hey, America, why aren't you living up to your ideals?
0: In your, uh, you recently wrote a piece about this to the uh, Atlantic Council's uh, blog, and uh, you mentioned uh, the uh, Mohamed Bouazizi incident in uh, Tunisia that sparked the Arab Spring. How different and how similar is uh, this event with what we have been watching in George Floyd in the aftermath of killing of George Floyd?
2: Look, let's take a step back. I think that there has been a number of um, sort of global incidents in recent years that have gone, you know, sort of viral on a level that is, you know, uh, kind of very, very contemporary and have created, you know, these sort of um, uh, uh, waves of change and waves of consideration and ways of thinking. You know, uh, yes, Mohamed Bouazizi and the, the, you know, self-immolation in Tunisia sparked the Arab Spring and that created all sorts of reverberations around the world. Um, you know, there, there was the Charlie Hebdo uh, uh, incident in Paris where, uh, you know, terrorists uh, killed a bunch of cartoonists and that opened up a discussion uh, uh, around the world about freedom of speech. But I think one of the, uh, the biggest, the, the most sort of salient comparison um, also happened in the United States was the Me Too movement. And how that opened up a whole discussion worldwide, not just the United States, mm-hmm. about gender relations, about you know, sexual harassment in the workplace and in other public spaces and so on. So I think this falls into that category, if I make any sense, of like these unique viral global moments uh, that we've been experiencing from time to time in the last couple decades.
0: So it will remain mostly as, you know, like, uh, do you think it is part of this social media activism or hashtag activism? It's, it's way more be- than that. But yeah. Look, yeah,
2: it starts with hashtag Black Lives Matter, Me Too, but then it, you know, transforms into the streets, into the courts, into the uh, UN General Assembly, which is o- opening a discussion on this uh, topic of racism. It, you know, becomes discussed in parliament. It becomes the subject of TV series and TV shows. It has, it maybe starts with a hashtag, but it goes way beyond social media uh, uh, to the streets and to the the public spaces of the world as well.
0: Uh, Okay, uh, Dr. Feng, uh, the examples that uh, Mr. Daragi gave about the Charlo Hebdo incident uh, and the Arab Spring and the demonstrations in the US is creating some global uh, movement actually what is happening in Hong Kong and why it is not creating the same global repercussion at the social level at least.
1: Yeah, that is interesting. To, uh, and people already point out that the uh, comparability and similarity of uh, the situation of police brutality in Hong Kong and in the U.S. And actually um, in the early days of the George Floyd protests in uh, Minneapolis and actually and uh, in some social media and some uh, media also captured some image, actually some protester has uh, learning or copying tactics uh, of Hong Kong protesters. Uh, 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 for example, they, they see people spraying slogan like be water, uh, hit and run with the police and things like that in Hong Kong. So there's one, one thing is that, uh, that uh, protesters in the US did uh, watch the, the police uh, brutality in Hong Kong and then the protests against that. And so there's some kind of uh, uh, influence there. And at the same time that uh, we don't see the large scale protests in support of the Black Lives Matter um, in the US, in Hong Kong yet. Uh, but uh, you can see that the sentiment is that that uh, the people in Hong Kong has been fighting the same though is not related to racial injustice, but it is a uh, similar level of uh, the, um, police brutality. So they have been continuing it. And by continuing the, the, the fight against police brutality in Hong Kong is too to be in solidarity and honoring the, the George Floyd uh, protests in, in the U.S. And uh, and so the George Floyd protest is about racial injustice in the U.S., but at, uh, uh, at the issue of police brutality, it also has this kind of global repercussion because uh, militarization of police forces has been quite a trend around the world now, that the U.S., not only U.S., but also in Europe, in, in Hong Kong, so they have all these kind of a commonality of targeting the marginalized group. In the case of the, the, the Europe, it is the, the, the ghetto and the suburban area with a lot of migrants that the police are targeting them with brutal tactics and, and militarized gears. In the US, it is the black neighborhoods. And in the Hong Kong, it is the young uh, people who are unhappy with the authoritarian Uh, rule. So in Hong Kong, we already see this discussion about and actually that the development of uh, George Floyd protest is being watched closely and then people acknowledge the fact that in the US, uh, their protest is long, uh, deep seated injustice, but also there's uh, this kind of uh, electoral collection and legislative process that might be able to correct the process. And for example, that they noticed that even President Trump who speak lot very highly of uh, the protester, has signed an executive order to uh, put some kind of reform, uh, police reform uh, measure and the Congress the Democrats are also uh, pushing for police reform. So they are watching it and then uh, still uh, uh, very uh, admiring the kind of uh, free and open system in the US though with, despite its imperfection that is uh, the thing is uh, better than in the Hong Kong system in which the police is not charged police uh, that commit brutality is not indicted and and the government is not responding to all this criticism of police brutality.
0: One general question uh, that comes from our audience as well about the US image around the globe. And this is, I think this is constantly a recurring, at least for the last 20 years, we have seen this as a recurring issue about the US image abroad. After the uh, Iraq war, after the Abu Ghraib incident, after the financial meltdown, after Trump's presidency, we keep seeing this debate about US images declining, and this decline will create a credibility gap for the US foreign policy in the future. Uh, and but as the things move forward, we see we started to see as a new normal. Yes, US is not as popular as it used to be, but it is still superpower and it is still credible, and it many people, many people around the world. Sees, see United keep seeing United States as a country of last resort in terms of crisis, global crisis, or in terms of anything. So uh, with the Floyd incident, George Floyd incident and its aftermath, what happened to U.S image? And do you think something drastically changed about U.S. image, or is it something that has been already known about the U.S, and it is, things are just moving forward as is? Dr. Hum.
1: I think there's two things. One is the image of the US government or the incumbent government, definitely after George Floyd and after the, the, the mismanagement of the pandemic, that the, the Trump administration, which already is not very popular around the world, uh, uh, is its uh, image continue to tank. Um, and it is the same as, the, as you mentioned that the, during the Iraq war uh, in the, under George W. Bush and, and, and uh, the anti-war movement in the US also triggered a wave of anti-war movement. Uh, and the 1999 Seattle anti-WTO protests also uh, helped triggered a wave of anti-globalization movement around the world. Uh, and then, uh, so there's a kind of a ups and downs and there's a cycle. Then, then when Obama was get elected, the US image seemed to recover a lot totally, but uh, at least uh, a, a bit better than than George W. Bush. And uh, so there will be, I will expect that this kind of cycle will continue in, depending on the direction of the election and who is going to control the Congress after November. Uh, but there's one thing of it. The another thing is that this, the image of the US as a, as a kind of a free society, vibrant civil society, it is the image of the US civil society. So I think for a long time, the US civil society, even though at times when the US government, sitting government is not very well respected and regarded around the world, the US civil society still get the kind of inspiration um, Still, become an inspiration for people around the world. Uh, for example, during the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King, uh, and all these social movement and anti-war movement in the sixties and seventies. And then, uh, as I said, during the George W. Bush uh, administration, though the Iraq War is not very popular, but uh, U.S. civil society uh, mobilizing against the war, uh, becoming inspiration around the world. And this time around, the George Floyd protests and and. Um, uh, it's uh, 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 mentioned about the Me Too movement as well, that, that it's become an inspiration uh, for the families around the world and and, and uh, I would like to add that in China, actually there's a Chinese version of the Me Too movement that the Chinese government actually shut it down and scaled it very soon that uh, women start to accuse uh, professors and officials of uh, sexual abuse and things like that. so. The U.S. soft power, uh, not only about its government and authorities, it's also about its vibrancy for society and its protests, its mobilization. Uh, despite the unpopularity of the government, I think the U.S. civil society and, and, and the movement and the mobilization will continue to become, uh, to, to be a kind of inspiration of people who want to see justice around the world.
0: Mr. Daragi, the same question.
2: Well, I mean, you asked a very, very broad question I'll just you know, sort of put, put, put it this way. I think that you know, anyone who uh, believed in this sort of myth of uh, uh, American uh, infallibility and invincibility of this sort of all-knowing conspiratorial power, I hope over the last 17 years, you, 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 you all see what a disaster the US is, what a, you know incompetent clown show it can be uh, with Iraq. Uh, with the botching of Iraq. And if you think that that was, you know, the plan, that their plan was to, you know, mire themselves in a, you know, long war in Iraq and, and you know, drain the economy and, and so on, that, that it was pure incompetence. It's pure incompetence, the handling of the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic. Uh, and it's, you know, pure incompetence uh, 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 in, in terms of what's, you know, happening in terms of the whole political structure of the country. Um, Look, I mean, in many ways, the U.S. right now is a failed state. Its cities are are burning. Um, The economy is a disaster. Uh, Foreign powers like the United Arab Emirates, uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, Israel, even Turkey uh, are, you know, sort of playing games in Washington and manipulating domestic politics. I mean, it might as well be Lebanon, you know, the number of foreign powers that have the ear of this particular White House, for example, and have influence in Washington. Um, And so it, it, you know, it is a a kind of a disastrous mess in the United States right now. Uh, As uh, my colleague pointed out uh, uh, earlier, the, the civil society is rather vibrant, but even that is flawed. Yes, they go out into the streets, but for God's sake, they don't vote. They don't show up on election day to vote. They, you know, come up and and protest and go into the streets and hold colorful banners and inspire everyone in the world. But when it counts, they don't show up at the polls in very large numbers. And so, you know, even that the the civil society has severe defects. Uh, So I hope if anything, uh, if the last 17 years has taught us anything is that there is no, you know, American puppet master. Um, It's just a bunch of amateurs.
0: So uh, you said uh, they, don't, you know, like the, they don't vote and because of that, it will not get any political uh, influence. The, I'm, I'm not sure if you have followed, yesterday there was primaries, including some uh, districts of New but Jersey. But
2: look at the numbers of people who voted in those primaries. It yes, was. yes, people, yeah, yeah, go ahead.
0: Uh, so uh, uh, three African-Americans were basically defeated, Uh, three influential members of the uh, House, do you think it will have any repercussions? Do you think this wave will continue until uh, November or not?
2: It might. Mm -hmm. um, But, you know, I mean, those primary elections, I know what you're pointing to, not not defeated, like some... Elliot Engels
0: and his loss.
2: Some, yeah, Elliot Engels, some conservative Democrats, uh, conservative especially on foreign policy. uh, uh, Elliot Engels, very pro-Israel hawk, Uh, defeated by a uh, a candidate, an African-American candidate who was supported by uh, Alexandria Octavio uh, uh, Cortez and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, the sort of progressive wing. But look at the numbers of people who voted in those primaries. I'm sorry, but it's rather pathetic. In like some of the most populated, heavily populated districts of New York, 36,000 people showed up to vote in those primaries, you know? I mean, that's, that's, so yeah, out of 36,000 people who voted in a district that's probably like a million people, you know, uh, th- this guy won. But that's a, a very tepid, pathetic turnout in a Democratic uh, primary. And if they can't get their numbers, like the, the, if, if the U.S. had the turnout rates that Turkey has, which is like basically 80 or 90 percent, you know, you wouldn't have any Republicans in the whole, you know, Congress at this point. You know, if they had the, the high numbers of participation, if they had some kind of, uh, 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 like, if they had Australia levels of participation, the it would be a completely different political game in the United States. But they don't. They barely get above 50% participation in presidential elections. And that is a disaster. So yeah, people go out in the street, and it's fun, and they feel empowered, and then uh, when it comes November 3rd, they don't show up. Uh,
0: Dr. Hong, are you as uh, pessimist as Mr. Daragi?
2: Uh, yes and no. That uh,
1: It is without doubt that the uh, U.S. voter turnout in comparison with other democracies or new democracies. All democracies are, are relatively low. Uh, I, at the same time, it won't blame the voters uh, uh, for all of these uh, issues because uh, there's some institutional, so this the US electoral system and democratic system has its problem that uh, there's some institutional uh, roadblock for people to vote. For example, there's the issues of uh, voter disenfranchisement, particularly in some red state that is uh, an issue for a long time, that uh, minorities are, are, very much discouraged by all kinds of measures of, uh, of the local official to vote. And at the same time, uh, that is the electoral system that uh, that uh, in, particularly in presidential election, that many people think that they are in a very solid West Day or blue state. They, 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 they don't count. So they, they're not enthusiastic to vote. So internationally, comparatively, that US has a relatively low turnout, right? But historically, you can see this up and down. So it depends on the issues and depends on the atmosphere. And last time, Trump got elected, many people analyzed is because of the low turnout among the Democrats that uh, people are frustrated with the candidates at that time. Uh, so a lot a lot of minorities uh, didn't vote uh, in Michigan that uh, Trump uh, won Michigan party because not only uh, African-American uh, that would have uh, come out to vote didn't come out, but also some uh, white union uh, Democrats uh, voted, they didn't come out and then and, and handed state to Trump and in many swing states. So this time we will see. Um, uh, for, for one thing, there's a lot of discussion uh, this time because of the pandemic, people are talking about uh, uh, mail-in ballots that would definitely increase the voting, uh, voting rate because all this kind of uh, voting place has a lot of problem and people who run the voting place might, might, might have discrimination against the minority. So they find it more difficult to vote and in some places there's a long line that is discouraging. If the mail-in vote become a reality, that it can definitely increase the vote uh, turnout, and then uh, uh, many people on the Democratic side hope that the turnout this time will will increase also because people don't really want to see another four years of Trump, so that the Democratic side turnout rate might increase. So the 2018 uh, midterm election might be a sign that this turnout rate uh, has upped uh, uh, because of the two years of Trump already, and then the Democratic side is energized and they have some exciting candidates and we will see in November, but definitely internationally, US uh, has a lot of job to do to increase the voter participation and at the same time, uh, we will see whether the cycle of ups and downs of voter turnout will will have its way in November to increase the turnout rate in the November election.
0: Do you expect the uh, mobilization and the wave that uh, 2008 actually created when President Obama was elected or not? Do you see the same level of activism at that time? Especially, the youth voters were considered as a critical part yeah. of Obama's victory.
1: Unfortunately, I don't see a lot because, f- for example, the pandemic really is a kind of huge hurdle. That now that they have difficulty doing even the census because uh, of these restrictions uh, given by the pandemic. So this Obama-type uh, get-out-the-vote and voter registration campaign is very difficult. Uh, back in 2008, they were actually knocking door to door to register voter. Now it's not difficult, it's very difficult to do it. And at the same time, uh, back in 2008, they have a very exciting candidates. Uh, many young people think that it is really a kind of a uh, uh, making history. So they are very excited, they're energized. And actually the research did show that a lot of the Obama voter turnout, uh, voter turnout operation is done by anti-globalization, anti-war movement, uh, many of the activists became the, the, the kind of ground troops of uh, Obama campaign to get out the vote. And this time around that uh, unfortunately Biden seems to be not yet developed this kind of uh, machines among the young people. But all That's add up that I don't see that the voter turnout can be as high as in back in 2008, particularly like the most enthusiastic young voters Early on, they are supportive of Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, but now that they kind of uh, turn off by the Biden's win, so there might be a kind of worry about this division within the democratic camp. Uh, whether the Biden uh, supporter will, will will come out enthusiastically to vote for Biden is a question. But of course, then this uh, time around is different in the sense that Trump is a kind of a, can be a potentially a big unifier among all the Democrats and liberals and even some Republicans. we see now that they, they, they start to press their voting for Biden. So we will see It's very un- highly uncertain circumstance. We have never seen it before having elections uh, in the middle of a pandemic and with such a polarizing presidents uh, as an incumbent.
0: It was reported that uh, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden has actually a team of people working together, a joint task force, if we can call it, uh, to somehow create a consensus probably uh, Biden is trying to get that mobilization effort of the Sanders behind him in the election. Do you think he will be successful to achieve that?
2: It is difficult
1: because um, the people on the left is already has a lot of complaining about uh, Sanders giving in too early and they're still unhappy about the democratic establishment. So there's a lot of mending work to do uh, to uh, for the Biden campaign to woo the supporters of uh, of uh, uh, of Biden supporter uh, supporter, even though Bernie Sanders come out emphatically endorsed uh, Joe Biden, that uh, his uh, followers might not be uh, 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 buying into that. So it depends on what Biden uh, is going to do, and definitely the vice presidential candidate is going to be very important. There's a lot of discussion about. Uh, uh, a minority or a women uh, should be wooed to become the vice presidential candidates and and to make up the uh, the uh, disadvantage of Biden as a, f- a very traditional and establishment uh, even old figures. Uh, so they need to do something um, uh, to energize uh, the 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 base of the Democrat, particularly young people. And and, and Obama turnout is high, and then he won by kind of a landslide because of the young, the enthusiastic voter. and and, and Biden cannot just count on uh, the universal uh, uh, this unhappiness about Trump uh, among the Democrat voters and he need to go further and do further, but it depends.
0: Uh, Mr. Daragi, the same question. Do you think, uh, is there any chance that there will be another Obama wave in 2020 presidential elections?
2: I mean, I don't think that anyone could match the, um, uh, coalition and the ground game um, and the, the sort of enthusiasm that Obama generated. Uh, but I think that you know, there have been studies done, and I'm not a political scientist, uh, about uh, what motivates people to vote. And more and more, they're discovering that you know, hate and anger could be just as motivating as you know, enthusiasm for a candidate. And, you know, although an Obama wave is not in the works, perhaps an anti-Trump wave is even more powerful because, um, I mean, I've never experienced, you know, myself, I'm sometimes shocked by the level of hatred and anger, um, you know, almost sort of violent anger uh, that people in the United States have against Trump when they, when they talk about him. Um, and the vindictiveness and venom they have for his supporters and his, his staff and so on. As uh, my colleague said, it's a very polarized environment. And people are motivated to vote. They'll vote for Biden. He's a safe bet. I think that, yes, you're not going to get young people voting for him enthusiastically, but you might get young people voting for Biden holding their nose. And as some people have pointed out, Um, Among African Americans, there's a lot of respect for Joe Biden because this is a guy, an old white guy, who uh, for eight years stood by Barack Obama's side, uh, a younger, smarter, more handsome guy than himself, uh, never once publicly questioned him, never once uh, uh, put him in his place, so to speak, uh, was super eager to play second fiddle to this young, cool African American guy and that has built a lot of respect. This is why he has so much, this is why Biden has uh, has so much respect in the traditional African-American communities uh, is because of that experience. Uh, and so, you know, people will vote for him out of respect. There's also some numbers that are kind of interesting, uh, suggesting that uh, senior citizens are, if not, you know, as they're, they're like more, or if not as uh, supportive of, Biden as they are of Trump. Now, that's really startling because, you know, old white people are the people who voted for Trump. Um, uh, but what is showing up in these numbers is that a lot of people, voters 65 and older, are actually uh, um, as enthusiastic, as supportive of Biden as they are of Trump. And That's super interesting.
0: Yeah, just to uh, today's New York Times poll showed that Uh, people 65 plus uh, Biden is leading by one percent, which basically in the 2016 election, I think it was nine per, uh, Trump had nine uh, percent advantage with them. And in terms of the voting blocks, today's New York Times poll showed that the only group actually uh, that Trump has still lead on is the uh, non-college educated white voters. And in that, Trump still has a lead and uh, is probably be an interesting election to watch. And uh, there's a question, uh, Dr. Hong, to you about Tim Cotton's uh, Mm -hmm. piece on New York Times and timing. And one of the first person uh, people actually that responded to that piece was the New York Times Beijing correspondent, actually, Mm -hmm. because it was the anniversary of the Tiananmen incident. So what do you yeah. say about
1: that? It is a very bad timing that uh, on the anniversary of the month, that uh, the whole world condemned uh, China at that time, sending the military to deal with uh, protester, and Tom Cotton and 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 even at some point the president toying with the ideas of using the military to crack down on. Uh, on protests uh, in in Washington DC, so it is a very bad reminder in parallel. And then people, I think, have a good reason to criticize this kind of talk that is t- actually tarnish tarnish um, US uh, the reputation in the world that it is not the people supposed to think that is supposed to happen in the in the US. Of course, that then if you uh, watch uh, f- uh, from a kind of a longer perspective, definitely that is still not comparable because uh, back in nineteen eighty nine, Beijing. Once the supreme leader uh, determined uh, decided that to use the military, that basically there's um, uh, the the path is unopposed and, and and all the way lead to the June Fourth uh, massacre. But in the U.S., that uh, it shows that the system, uh, no matter how much uh, flaws, how much problem it has, it still worked. That this check and balance, that uh, you don't uh, even if you have a supreme leader. The presidents or, or some high rank officials are very interested in using the military to deal with uh, protests. But you see uh, after Tom Cotton's uh, article after Trump talked about openly about the, the, the possible use of military, then you see all this pushback from people in the establishment, including Republicans in Congress are distancing themselves from these, uh, their voice from Pentagon, retired generals, retired uh, uh, military people speaking out against it. And in the end, it didn't, it didn't happened and Trump demobilized the election of guards very soon and, and, and the whole thing get diffused, and didn't, didn't end up in a kind of a tenement situation. And now two, uh, a few weeks later that uh, the situations uh, mostly come down then and, 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 and people are looking at how to reform the police and the discussion moved to this how to remedy, uh, the remedy for the root cause of the protest. So in the long, long, long in, in the longer sort, you can still see and people can see it. So it's why the Chinese government Talk about uh, in an opportunistic way to talk about the US protests, US how horrible it is, but at the same time, it still censor the news and don't want people to see actually what is happening in in the US in the long run and how the system works to prevent a tragedy from happening.
0: Uh, Mr. Darage, a question for you. You called the United States a failed state after these demonstrations. And uh, is this... uh,
2: Not not just the demonstration.
0: Uh, is, this some, is there something new? It has been called failed state after Vietnam, after the oil crisis. There was a lot of debate about the U.S. decline in 1980s. Even uh, people like Paul Kennedy assumed that 1990s, Japan will be superpower. In 2000s, we have a huge literature on American decline and the end of United States supremacy. So what is new with these demonstrations that made you say that it's a failed state? Mm-hmm.
2: No, I mean, the, first of all, I'll just put one caveat. Failed state yeah. is like a, it's like a neat academic term. Yeah. And, you know, we can debate the merits of that. But actually, what makes the United States resemble a failed state is not the fact that there's demonstrations. Maybe that's healthy in a way, um, that there's popular demonstrations. What's what's what makes it a failed state is the police response to those demonstrations and the burning and the torching and the and the uh, and, and the. Uh, 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 use of military hardware, even though they didn't do the ultimate crackdown that Trump and Tom Cotton were threatening. Um, that makes it one dimension of the failed state. But the biggest dimension of the United States being potentially called a failed state is the amount of foreign influence there is in the government and government affairs. It has become an open casino in uh, 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 the United States in terms of foreign countries going in there buying space in K Street in Washington, hiring lobbyists, and then, you know, kind of basically cajoling lawmakers and even the White House to do their bidding. In that sense, it's, you know, more like a Libya or a Lebanon where you have foreign powers moving in and, you know, moving the government this way and that, getting control of their various factions, Qatar has its people in Congress. The United Arab Emirates has the ear of Jared Kushner. Saudi Arabia has the ear of Mike Pompeo. Putin and Trump keep talking and going this way and that. Erdogan uh, talks with Trump all the time, influences foreign decisions, and so on. Um, and in that sense, it's a failed state. These are you know, foreign powers moving in and manipulating the, 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 the country's uh, uh, foreign policies and sometimes domestic policies.
0: Uh, One more question to you, Mr. Daragi, from Mohammed Sohrab. Uh, It's a long question, but he's mentioning the treatment of Palestinians and Israel and questioning why there is not much debate in civil society uh, in the West about that. And is the West policy vis-a-vis Israel guided by the democratic imperatives or or by the geopolitical considerations?
2: I think that... In the West, people are just tired and worn out by the uh, uh, question of Israel and Palestine. There is a lot of sympathy in the Democratic Party. Just today, we were talking about one of the most stridently pro-Israel candidates in the US Congress, defeated by an African-American progressive who has been openly critical of this congressman's Israel policy. So there is a debate. It's not. It's not completely shut down. There is. Uh, there are two wings in the Democratic Party in the United States: a very pro-Israel, pro-Likudnik wing, and a much more enlightened wing in the Democratic Party of the United States. And you know, there's a constant fight between you know the, the the people who are sort of traditional pro-Israelites and those who are much more balanced in their approach. And so I don't think the debate is over. I think people are still talking about it. I think that there is still sympathy for the Palestinian cause and for a just and peaceful solution to that terrible conflict.
0: Okay, we have uh, five minutes and the last question for both of you is, uh, Mr. uh, Professor Hong, uh, do you think this uh, mobilization of Black Lives Matter would bring a consolidation in the Trump base or the white supremacists, which would mobilize them uh, in the elections as well.
1: Definitely, is, uh, what the, the conservative analysts hope for or what Trump uh, would hope for, that uh, Trump already uh, reiterated the word law and order quite a number of times since the protest started and, and, and he knows that uh, it is uh, what, uh, the hand lexons uh, landslide victory after the unrest in 1968. That this law and order, this fear of law and order among white uh, conservative people, uh, might might be energized as with this anxiety about the social uh, fabric and social order breakdown and increase in crime and order. So it might uh, have some effect. And how big effect we don't know. That uh, if the uh, unrest uh, turned to more violent directions uh, in the months to come, and uh, then it will definitely worry these people. But at this time, we see that the situation already calmed down, uh, so uh, it might not have that much an um, uh, effect on that. And more important is uh, how the economy and how the pandemic situation is looked like in in the fall. That now we already see a sign of uh, rebounds of uh, cases of COVID nineteen and and the second wave coming, and then the, the, the stock market today after some time of ready and, and uh, go south again. So it depends and, and in the end the many voters when they go to vote, uh, uh, the practical voter, they are asking whether their life is better off now in comparison to four years ago. If the answer is a negative that they are worse off. Uh, in many of the predictions uh, about uh, electoral outcome, that usually if they many people feel that their life is worse than four years ago, that the incumbent uh, the uh, president for the election will be uh, in trouble. So the uh, Trump will not be an exception. Uh, so I would say it is highly volatile situation right now. and, and, and we we'll never have this kind of a, the election in this situation before in the, in the middle of the pandemic in a kind of. A, polarizing environment and at the same time that uh, 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 there's a lot of things that can happen between now and November.
0: And how should we interpret the uh, fact that, in, especially in major cities, in the demonstrations, uh, uh, yes. in some of them actually the predominant majority was the white, uh, not the African Americans. So yeah. how yeah. should we interpret this change? This is probably the first time that they play a more central role actually.
1: And many of the cities are actually that uh, the, the place affected mostly by the demonstration is actually the quite the deep blue places like like Minneapolis and Minnesota and and, and, and uh, New York and all the East Coast and West Coast in California. So it's interesting that that it, we need to factor this into our uh, prediction or our calculation about how it affected the election uh, and how would the people in the swing state will think that uh, I, I bet that in the end, the people in the swing state that deliver from the presidencies like Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, 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 those places that uh, in the end that uh, the, the, the result of the election there will be determined by the economy and by the situation of the
0: pandemic primarily. Mr. Daragi, the same question about the right wing cons- potential right wing consolidations. Do you, think, do you expect something like that?
2: No. I mean, two things. First of all, Trump's got his base of support, and that base of support has rarely moved uh, over the last four years. He has his solid supporters, his core, um, and he's not reached out to uh, those in the middle, and he's you know, not won any of those new supporters. So then it becomes a question of voter turnout on election day. Uh, and the other thing is, yes, if Hillary Clinton was president, and, you know, there was riots and unrest and a challenger like Donald Trump came and said, you know, law and order, law and order, law and order, that would be, you know, effective. But when you're the president and you're barking law and order as there's riots going on, you've failed already. You've already created the, the law and order voters are disappointed in you. You did not impose law and order. You, you, you completely failed. So you know and that happened in you know to David Dinkins, David Mayor of New York, and David Dinkins, the election that brought uh, Giuliani to power. It works for Republicans when they do that. It sometimes works for Democrats when they do that. But as challengers, uh, it doesn't work when you're an incumbent and you say that I'm the law and order guy, and people are burning down the cities. Now you you already it's too late. So I think that the the, the unrest uh, as which has tapered down already, which was largely caused by. Heavy-handed police tactics has already kind of cooled and turned into peaceful vigils and protests uh, that are regular and not any you know kind of dramatic events. And two, you know, the, the, it, it's it's over for him. I think to some extent, uh, he's not going to expand his base. People who are thinking about uh, 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 who, those few people who were fence sitters, they're going to go with Joe Biden at this point. And so it just becomes a question of turnout and ground game on election day and, you know, knowing Trump, how much he can cheat. Uh,
0: do, don't you think, uh, you know, like the, now he's uh, accusing of actually the mayor of uh, Minneapolis or mayor of Seattle, actually, for being too progressive, for being too lenient for the demonstrators. Do you think that part, that's kind of strategy of scapegoating would work for him or not?
2: It in might my, in my work on, among his hardcore supporters, but, you know, we're talking about, let's, you know, whatever, like the suburban soccer mom living outside of uh, Philadelphia. No, I think it'll work with like, you know, the the core constituency that he has. But, you know, you're a, uh, 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 you know, middle-aged small business owner outside of Ann Arbor, in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, in the suburbs of Detroit, you know, uh, you're you're looking at your Your economy, the economy's gone bad, you're basically not able to pay your one or two employees, Uh, your kids have not been going to school, things are horrible, things are terrible, they're much worse than they were four years ago. And then this guy is barking on TV all the time about, you know, liberals and, you know, uh, going on and on about uh, Barack Obama four years ago and talking about like uh, CIA conspiracies and FBI conspiracies against him. That's not going to really help with those particular voters.
0: Thank you very much. The very last question, Dr. Hung. Is there any, you know, like, uh, especially when we were talking about COVID and even when we were talking about the Floyd case, we are talking about a little bit about economy and how the social economic conditions impact the election. Mm-hmm. Is there, do you expect, you know, is there anything that can surpass the influence of economy or the social economic inequalities in the United States in the elections? Were, is- the come Trump campaign. What yeah. would you advise him to win the election? Knowing Trump and his <laughs> ideological- <laughs> It
1: would be very difficult. It will be very difficult job to do it, but uh, the common wisdom is that if you are entrenched and, and in this kind of bad situation, you are desperate and, and you might risk and gamble on starting a war or something that that to to, to, to make your opponent cannot oppose you. But, but mobilize uh, the nationalist sentiments but I doubt whether it even that would work given the situation that I think if people put bad on the table that uh, I don't think a lot of people will put bad on the table that uh, Trump will win the e- re election but of course that after the 2016 that everybody predictions is wrong that nobody can say for sure everything can happen but for Republican I think what they worry about now is a lot about whether Trump is getting reelected I Suspect many of them already uh, prepare for the worst in the presidential election, but they will need to work more on the Senate's elections that whether they can hold on to the majority in the Senate, that it uh, uh, for them, I think, more important to. Lot to be dragged by Trump and to, loss, uh, to lose control on the Senate and, and, and it is why you see some Republican uh, starting to distance themselves from Trump and some even uh, speak openly against uh, Trump and saying that they're going to vote for uh, Joe Biden. So it is a tough call for them. It is an uphill battle for them. And then the economy and the situation of the pandemic, unless there's some miracle happened that I don't think this situation can improve dramatically over the next few months It's going to take time for the economy and the society to recover from all that.
0: Mr. Daragi, uh, you seem to be not willing to be an advisor for Trump campaign, but if you were so, uh, w- would you have any kind of strategy, any winning strategy or game changer that he can basically change this uh, situation?
2: I mean, I think it might be a little too late, you know, but I mean, if if a year ago he had changed track and you know, run as a sort of uh, limousine Republican, uh, um, you know, gone to the center, uh, uh, like, you know, you have center-right politicians in the world who are smart. You know, Recep Tayyip Erdogan at the beginning of the pandemic, he was like, he said one really smart thing, for example. He said, you know what, let's listen to the scientists. If he had done something, if Trump had done something like that at the beginning of the pandemic, instead of being this idiotic bully, throughout this whole thing. That might have softened his image in the minds of those you know, moderate voters. You know? But he, he's just not capable of it. He's not capable of you know, thinking in a three dimensional way. Uh, he just like, wants to feed red meat to the, 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 his supporters and get them riled up uh, and has not shown any capability whatsoever of stealing votes from the center.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Hong, and thank you, Mr. Darage. And thank you. Take for care. Our audience, uh, next week, we will have another webinar on China US relations, and hope to see you again. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks.